You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Episode 85, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome to the Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thank you for joining me as we explore the U.S. medical system in a fun, informative format through expert analysis. Today's going to be a special spring break edition. It's spring break here in Michigan. I had not anticipated and put anything out because I was not going to be in the country, but that has clearly changed. It was going to be my daughter's special graduation gift of some sorts uh, from high school. It was our last spring break together, but coronavirus or COVID-19 has kind of ruined that and it's ruined all kinds of people's plans and businesses, lives, careers, health, certainly for some people. Uh, so we're going to talk about that today. And specifically, we're going to focus on the nonsensical response to the coronavirus outbreak through government action. And I'm really upset about what's going on in Michigan. Michigan's not unique. It is a little bit different in the sense that Michigan has sort of two different outbreaks that are going on, and one that is and one that isn't. And so that's what we're going to discuss today. And I think it's important to look at the government response to what's going on. And again, Michigan is not unique in this sense. And I think I don't want to pick on anyone in particular, uh, but I would say that our governor is handling this poorly. And I'm recording this as of April 10th, 2020. Clearly things change quickly with this whole coronavirus. Uh, it's from one week to the next. Things have, they're very fluid, as they say. But I want to talk about some of the bad science or people just not understanding what's going on. I was a nuclear engineer as my undergraduate degree at the University of Michigan. So I did lots of physics, lots of mathematics, obviously things related to radiation shielding, uh, which is, you know, how much stuff you need between you and the radioactive source, what the sort of radiation is, what the possibility from you know, a health standpoint, what the danger is. Different particles are different, have different penetrations through different substances. Some things cause more damage than others. So anyway, one of the, one of the principles of radiation, one of the basic ones is called attenuation. And so this is basically the, the notion that the farther you get away from something or the more substance you between, put between yourself and the radiative, radioactive source, the more protection you have or the less exposure you get to the radiation. And this is actually, we're not going to talk about the substance, we're just going to assume we're in air, so there's nothing actually between you and whatever it is. And you'll hear this all the time if you're in the OR or if you're you know in the emergency department, they'll say, well, as long as you're six feet away, you're fine. Right? And so universally, six feet is used as this safety zone with radiation. And I mention that because you're hearing the exact same thing when it comes to coronavirus. There is this magical six-foot zone where you are no longer at risk for, getting, for contracting coronavirus, much like if you're six feet from whatever radioactive source there is, you're not at risk for getting whatever it is, x-ray radiation, that's going to be significant. Well, this is clearly false. Uh, if you look at an x-ray beam, we always imagine it as like a laser. And so the x-ray is shot, the, the radioactive um, particles travel in a straight line, the x-rays, 
Uh, but this is not the case. They sort of, they, what we call scatter. And so they move in all directions. They don't go backwards usually, although they can reflect off surfaces. They get attenuated by surfaces. So if you're standing behind a piece of paper, some of the x-rays are attenuated, not many. If you're standing behind a piece of lead, then most of the x-rays absorbed and it actually does not penetrate. Uh, if you're behind, you know, 18 feet of titanium and lead, and so, then you'll get no exposure from that, the x-ray radiation. Well, the same is, can be said for coronavirus, right? So this is why the principle of having, if we're worried about aerosolized viruses, clearly if you're wearing a mask, the amount of coronavirus, the distance that it can actually travel is attenuated. Likewise, if there is no mask, why do we care about six feet? What is magical about six feet? There's nothing magical about it. But one of the principles of, of, of the engineering and for attenuation of whether it's a virus spreading out of someone's mouth, traveling through the air, or radiation, essentially we imagine it moves in a scattered sort of projectile, so it's concentrated right at the mouth. As you get farther away from the mouth, it sort of just dissipates. And so the amount of exposure you get is re related to how close you are to the source. So why is it six feet? Well, it's because it's actually related to, if you look at it a fraction, it's related to R squared. So as you get farther away from the distance, or D squared in this case, since you're not actually using your radius, since you're not worried about radiation from behind you, as you get farther away, it's the amount of radiation you get is reduced by the square. So what does that really mean? Well, it means if you're two feet away, you get one quarter, so one over four. If you're three feet away, you get one ninth, or you get about 12%, of 11 to 12% of the potential exposure. Four feet, one sixteenth. So what's magical about six feet? Nothing. It just means you're now at about 3% of what the radiation, what the exposure dose would be for radiation, or in this case, viral, viral projectiles. Likewise, if you're five feet away, it's 125th or 4%. So there's really not anything special about six feet versus five feet versus even honestly four feet, except that the exposure level is a lot lower. So it doesn't make it zero. I mean, obviously, you're a thousand feet from someone. The exposure would be essentially zero, one over like a millionth. Uh, you know, so one of those virus particles could make it to you. But that's the whole thing with six feet. There's nothing magical about it. It's just a mathematical thing. Uh, but I don't want people to think that you know if someone's four feet away. They're at like massive risks for things. And it's once you get out six feet, then well, clearly, you know, whatever it is can't survive that far. It's just simply a reflection of just math and d squared, or the 1 over d squared. So it's the inverse of the square. So that's where the whole 6 feet comes from, both whether you're in the OR. So if you're 4 feet from an x-ray machine that fires, your exposure is 1 16th, what it would be if you were you know, right at the source. So I don't know. I mean, it's more, but it's not like you're better off at 6. You're better off at 6, but it's not like there's something magical about the 6 feet distance that you know, suddenly it like stops everything. So I don't know what that makes you feel, but... I think, you know, we always, the six foot thing is touted by all these officials and people saying, make it like it's a magical thing. It's not, it's just math. So anyway, that's one thing. I just had to get that off my chest because the math thing has been bothering me for weeks now. So let's talk about the break, the outbreak of coronavirus and what I think is a very nonsensical response by the government. Uh, we've talked about in this program about the problems with the FDA and the CDC and their bungling of the of the testing and the fact that they've limited through regulatory reasons why we've had a limitation on protect, personal protective equipment, whether that's through tariffs or that's through generally regulations that don't allow industrial uses for hospital uses. And so we 
cut a supply line really thin. And then even in an event of time when you need it in a crisis, you don't have access to it because of these regulatory burdens. And if you're someone who's manufacturing things, you're like, well, there's no point me trying to you know, apply for the applications to produce these masks because by the time I actually get my factory geared up to start producing them and the FDA actually approves it, it the crisis will sort of be gone. The other masks that are being produced will sort of caught up. There's no point to it. And so that's why we don't have a big, huge surge in supply either in some ways because, quite frankly, uh, there just doesn't make any economic sense to retool your factory to do this. If you're already doing it, you can maybe apply for extensions and things like that with the, the FDA or the C- to get allowed to make more, which is crazy that you're actually only allowed to make a certain amount in some instances. But this is regulatory capture. This is why what the industry likes. They like this way. It prevents any competitors from coming to the market. But all that aside, uh, let's talk about the other problems that are going on with the virus and the response to it. The virus is a problem. It causes a huge surge in admissions, ICU usage. Uh, people get sick from it. Unlike the flu, they get sick for a longer period of time. They tend to be, in the, those who require hospitalization get sicker. They tend to die a little bit more frequently, it seems, in the flu. Uh, I don't know that we're going to know really the numbers of everything until this is all done. And even then, it's going to be really hard to sort of parse out when you when you realize how unreliable lots of the statistics are uh, as far as, you know, classification of who died from what. Because there's some question, you know, if anyone dies of something suspicious of the flu, or I'm sorry, of pneumonia, then you say, oh, they just died of coronavirus, when in fact, maybe that's what they died of. We don't know for sure. We never tested. Uh, it doesn't make sense to test someone who's dead because they're maybe 85 years old, they had other comorbidities, and you're like, well, you know, they died of pneumonia, we'll just call it coronavirus because that's what's going on right now. That seems to be prevalent in the community. But there are a number of people who are dying of pneumonia all the time, and so they weren't getting coronavirus. So you can't say that everybody who now suddenly is dying of pneumonia is coronavirus, if that makes sense. Uh, but that aside, the the problem with the with this response is that we're not really having a response and restrictions that make any sense in in relation to how, how we're going to try and control the virus or mitigate the the, um, the spread. Right now, we can't contain it because we don't have any adequate testing. It's so prevalent in the community that there's no way of stopping it from coming. Uh, so it's already here. And so the goal is to prevent more people from getting it, to try and slow down the spread you might have heard the term are not. That basically means how many people on average are contracted from another person who has the the virus. So I think it's like 1.34 to, to 2 people. So if you're one person, you get sick, you're going to spread it to two people. They spread it to two people, and suddenly that's you've spread it to eight people, right? Because if uh, if those people just send it to, like if you go sort of like the seven degrees of Kevin Bacon, right? If you go far enough out, if you double everything, it doesn't take long before you have a gigantic number. I mean, just try and take a piece of paper and fold it 20 times. You'll find that you're un, uh, unable to do that. So in order to mitigate the spread of the virus and to change that R-naught to a lower number so that the ability for you to infect someone else would be a lot less. It'd be maybe half a person. So wait, one person only gets half a person infected. Or so it takes two people to get one person infected. As you can imagine, now that the spread of the virus slows massively. And this is sort of like if you got a cold and you stayed home and you didn't go in. And in fact, everyone in your house got the cold. They all stayed home and they didn't go out and about until they got over it. Well, now you've now you've changed your risk to giving it to other people to about zero because you essentially you're not having contact with them. Now, maybe you were infectious right before you realized you had symptoms and you just didn't stay home. 
But anyway, the point is that you've changed the R naught. You've changed the ability to get other people sick or the, the likelihood of getting other people sick. Now, there, the tricky thing with coronavirus, it certainly seems that there's asymptomatic spread, which means you can be sort of feeling fine or have minimal symptoms that you don't recognize. You're walking around, you're infectious, you get people sick for a couple of days, and then you realize you're sick and you stay home. But at that point, some of the damage has already been done in the sense that you've gotten some other people sick. So if we think that's the case, then we want to prevent people from going out and about and getting other people sick. The number of 1.3 to 2 of, you know, are not of how many people you get sick is entirely dependent on your behavior not changing. So the, the thing that's important is to say, well, if you know that there's this, something is present in the community that is potentially infectious that's going to spread, and you think, well, I'm at risk of spreading it or contracting it, I'm going to be careful about what I do. I'm not going to go to a bar and hang out. I'm not going to go to church maybe, or I'm going to, when I go out, maybe I'm going to wear a mask. I'm going to use Purell. I'm going to wash my hands 10 times more often than I used to. If those are the things that happen, then you have almost for sure changed that R not from maybe as one and a half to two to maybe one or less just by your change in behavior and, and be more cognizant of what you could possibly be doing for, to other people or you know to your family or whatever. So likely with nothing being done, People change their behavior, and the the mitigation rate, or the mitigation increases in the sense that the spread slows just just by the fact that people are aware of what's going on. And so you don't have to do anything, and just people's general behavior will change a little bit. Now, it's possible that that's not enough. Maybe this is so infectious or so deadly that even those methods aren't enough. And so you can tell kids all you want to blow your you know when you blow your nose or sneeze in your sleeve and wash your hands all the time, but if you've seen little kids, especially, I mean, they're they're not their hygiene is not high in their list of uh, priorities, and so uh, it's not surprising that viruses spread very quickly in schools. You'll see strep throat, pink eye, lice, all kinds of things, right? That all happens in schools. Uh, the one nice thing about coronavirus, in some ways, is that it doesn't kill young children unless they are significantly immunocompromised or some sort of real problem for them. But uh, which is unlike the flu, even which the flu is much more dangerous and deadly to children. But that aside. If you're worried about mitigation, if you're worried about the spread and you want to do mitigation techniques, it is not unreasonable to say we're going to close schools because that is a vector, means people who can spread the disease to other people and kids spread everything. And so you send them home and they got it, that they give it to their friend and they go to their house and they give their parents and their grandparents or whatever. And that's how it can spread and get through the community. Now, people make the, some people say, well, it's actually safer having them at school rather than at home because the likelihood of them exposing other people is, is less uh, at school because they're not around, aside from teachers, they're not aside from, around adults, maybe people who are more vulnerable population are going to get sick from it. I don't know. I don't want to go into that discussion because I don't think we, I know, and I don't think anyone knows for sure what's the best technique. I don't think it's unreasonable for people to say we need to close the schools while we have this pandemic. This is assuming that the coronavirus is bad as it, as everyone says it is, which if you see communities that are hit hard by it, without a doubt it is because um, you're hitting everything all at once and stressing resources that in the communities. So there are mitigation techniques that I think are reasonable, like telling everyone to wear a mask, telling people to not get stand up close to each other, not gather in large crowds. Uh, if you have something that's really dangerous, then these things make sense. And so when the government has dictates saying, you know, don't do this, don't do that. And they include, don't gather in large crowds, don't, you know, maintain your social distance, wash your hands. 
you know, these things are, I would say, reasonable, reasonable things for a government to say. But the problem, of course, is is that government sees everything as a square peg, and they have, and they have only a hammer, <laughs> and they only have square holes. And so, if you have anything that's round, the government's going to find a way to push it through or to write some arbitrary rules. And so, what happens is, the government is incapable of making nuanced rules. And this is by its nature. It has to be that way, right? If you were to try and write, make a rule for everybody, well, you have to make a million rules if you have you know, a million people. Because everyone has different circumstances. Everyone has different you know, issues and problems and things they're trying to do. And so this is where the government gets in trouble because they have to have a one-size-fits-all rule that makes it easily enforceable. And because of this, they can't have the nuance that's necessary. And I would point to our state of Michigan as an example. Most states are probably like this. They have urban areas and they have rural areas. The danger of, of the spread of a disease is probably directly related to the density of the population, how close people are together. A place like New York City, things are going to spread much more easily because everybody's right together, packed together in apartment buildings and on transit, down the sidewalk, in the restaurants, all over the place. Whereas if you're in a small town, you're, you're not around many people very often. And so it's not to say that the disease can't make it to these small places, but the likelihood of it spreading and having that same rate of spread is entirely different based on your community. It's also probably related to communities. So that's why you see things like maybe Italy's worse from a cultural reason because they kiss each other as opposed to just shake hands or, you know, and maybe in other countries where they don't touch each other at all, they may have a lower spread. I don't know, but those things obviously make a difference. But if you have a state like Michigan, we have very rural areas, we've got suburban areas, we have urban areas. Well, the urban area is getting crushed, and that's Detroit. But outside of Detroit, it's not that bad. In fact, in the rural areas in the state, especially like the Upper Peninsula, which is, for those of you looking at a map, that's the one that's above the Great Lakes, uh, there's many counties that don't have any reported cases. Now, you could say, well, there aren't any doing enough testing. That's probably valid. But the point of the matter is there just aren't a lot of people sick in the hospitals flooding in, in the UP. And even in West Michigan, Southwest Michigan, Northern Michigan, it's just not a huge problem. In fact, the problem is pretty much located in Southeast Michigan. So what would make more sense is to have restrictions and things that relate specifically to the areas that are affected, that are most severe. And so what would be a much more sensible thing is to say, we're going to have regional differences or maybe countywide uh, restrictions based on what's going on in our community, to have large large swaths of land that are treated exactly the same when they have different risks doesn't make any sense. Uh, it's the easiest thing for the state to say, but it'd be, but it, there are other things, ways the state could respond. And the problem with this, of course, too, is that if you try and decide what is, from a business standpoint, what is essential and non-essential, it's impossible. There are some, maybe you could say, are obvious, like a nail salon is not essential. Now, of course, it's essential to the person working there, uh, but for the people who are getting their nails done, do you have to get your nails done? Probably not. Do you have to get your hair cut? Probably not. Uh, there are probably some things you could say are pretty clearly non-essential. But when you try and figure out what is essential, well, certainly let's say you got to have food, so you have to have grocery stores. You have to have people who can stock the shelves. You have to have people who deliver the food. You have to have people who grow the food. You have to have people who can service the grocery store when things break, like the air conditioning, uh, people who clean the store. You have to have people who 
provide fuel for the store, people who drive the fuel back and forth, who work the gas stations. You have to have people who maintain the fleet. What if you have a flat tire? You have to have people who can fix tires still. What if a car breaks down? You have to have people who can fix the fix the car. Well, what about the people who supply the parts? Uh, it's sort of like the iPencil. If you've never watched, I'll actually link to that. But iPencil is a book written by Mildred Friedman, just you know how to make a pencil. And the amounts of millions of people who are involved in this sort of thing is pretty astronomical. It's pretty hard to imagine. It is actually amazing that it actually ever even happens in something that is totally uncoordinated. But that's beside the point. The point is that it's very difficult to figure out exactly who is essential and who is not essential. And this is where the problem comes in with these restrictions. Because if the restrictions are in place in order to prevent people from getting coronavirus and spreading it to others, and you say, well, we only want businesses that are important to be open, well, then let's say you think, well, no one needs to really mow the lawn. Okay, that's probably true, but is it really important to stop a person who's a solo operator, who's out on his lawnmower, just mowing grass, not within 2,000 feet of anybody, and cutting grass? Is that person someone you need to prevent from working? Or how about someone who's building something, uh, doing roofing by him or herself, installing windows by themselves? There's no crew. Maybe they're trimming a tree. Are these people important to close down? I don't think so. And so this is where you have the real problem. Because if your whole point is to prevent people from getting coronavirus and spreading it, well, stopping one person from walking around not near anybody doesn't make any sense why you would stop them from doing it. You have to, as a government, because for political reasons, right? Because if you allow that person to just go out and mow lawns, well, they have a competitive advantage over the commercial landscape crew that has to have six people and they go from, you know, to a neighborhood and they mow 10, 20 people's lawns or whatever. They're, you know, shut down because they can't have a large crew. But the person has one, has a solo operation and that's their only source of income. Well, now they're just out of luck because their other competitors are unable to work. And so it's not fair to have them work and not the competitors. And of course, if you're looking from a lobbying perspective, obviously the, the large companies that have lots of crews are going to have better lobbying. So they're going to say, well, if we can't work, no one else should be able to work either. Likewise, the same goes for just about anybody who's working by themselves. It doesn't make any sense from a epidemiological stance that these people should not be able to work. And the more people you have out of work and forcing to stay idle, the more social problems and economic problems you're going to have for this country. And that's going to cause massive health problems, uh, significant I mean, issues, obviously, with nutrition status. People can't buy food. They can't buy the same types of foods. And you're going to have real problems in just commerce. And these have real world effects on people, mental health issues, all sorts of things. And so it's not something they just can be waved away and say, well, they're just not essential. It's not important to get your lawn cut. Well, I agree. If your lawn gets, your grass gets long, it's not the end of the world. But the point is there's no point in stopping that from happening. Likewise, many of these rules, like you can't drive around town and, you know, go to someone's driveway and wish them a happy birthday, but never get out of your car. Well, why not? That doesn't make any sense. You're at no risk of spreading the disease. There's no reason we have, we don't live in a totalitarian state, which it's starting to feel more and more like. And if your goal with this, these orders are to keep people healthy, then preventing people from getting out of their house and doing things when they are completely without any contact with another human being outside of their own household makes no sense. It's the arbitrary nature of government. It's a real problem. And, uh, and you see this in, then you, then you see problems with like, you know, you can't open a greenhouse. 
Well, probably common in Michigan, and I know lots of other places, you have these superstores, like, you know, a grocery store, even Target, which sells groceries and sells other stuff. Well, now you say we're not allowed anyone, we don't want anyone going outside. We have a stay at home orders. So don't go out unless you have to get groceries because you have to have food. You have to have, you know, whatever gas to get places, but you have to have food, right? So you can go into the store and buy groceries, but you can't buy anything else. And so the, you know, you go to those stores and like, well, they have, they also sell, you know, potting soil and seeds or furniture, toys. And now you say, well, we don't want any people even going out for that because, so we're just going to, you know, target, you can stay open, but you have to stay open just for groceries or whatever. You have to like cordon off the entire store. It's totally insane. Uh, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense just because of, from a fairness standpoint, they keep, just because you shut down greenhouses doesn't mean you can shut down the, these grocery stores and they realize this, but they did no other way around it except to just have these arbitrary rules of like shutting down other commerce within that same store. It causes a lot of economic anguish. Uh, and I would just point to what's happened with our governor now. We're going to specifically focus on Michigan. Yesterday, April 9th, our governor extended our stay-at-home orders through the end of April. It was originally going to expire, I think, on, the, on Tuesday, the 13th. And this is not an indictment against her because she's a Democrat or any sort of political reasons. I think, well, there are plenty of political reasons you do this sort of thing. Um, but I think the the officials really enjoy having this power to tell people what to do because for them, there's very little cost. She's getting a check and all the legislators and, you know, I would argue that they're non-essential. Whether people are passing laws or not, it doesn't make any difference. It's not going to change anyone's life. You know, whether These people could, are totally non-essential, yet they're getting paychecks and they're continuing to work. Uh, and so she's getting her hair done, I'm sure. I'm sure she's getting you know hair dyed and whatever, all the other stuff that none of us regular people are allowed to, to do. And, and this is causing real problems for real people. You know, you can say, well, we just give unemployment benefits or whatever, but that is going to be a real problem because you're now going to have businesses that are going to go out of business completely. There are already ones in, I know, in our, my area that are restaurants that are permanently closing, uh, and I'm sure plenty of other things that are closing I'm just not aware of because they can't sustain two months without any income. I think, you know, you look at physicians' offices and things like that, serious problem. Uh, but not only did she extend the orders through the end of the month, which, okay, you do that, but it became even more restrictive and even worse. And so we now can't travel between residences within the house. So if you have a cottage, you're not allowed to travel within the cottage. It's, I guess, breaking the law. You get arrested. You can't advertise. You can't advertise property or gardening materials or anything that's non-medical or food related. I don't even know how they're going to enforce this. Are they going to tear down billboards? Are they going to... I, I don't even know what the thinking is of the state. That, that you can issue an executive order and just ban advertising. You can't sell carpet. You can't sell flooring. You can't sell furniture. You can't sell paint. You can't go to vacation rentals. You can't rent anything, obviously. All travel is essentially prohibited unless it's deemed essential. I don't know how you enforce this. I'm not exactly sure what the danger is for me just driving around town. Now, if I say I'm going to go exercise or go to walk, you're allowed to do that. Uh, as long as you maintain social distancing, et cetera. But these these laws and these rules are in place have no bearing on say, protecting people. <laughs> I mean, you could argue that you don't want people going to get flooring, I suppose, but I don't know. I just don't, I don't understand if you have all these other protections in place, maintain social distancing, wear a mask, 
wash your hands. How these things are a direct threat to anybody. And the fact that tree trimmers, landscapers, builders, I mean, garden centers can't be open. None of this makes any sense. There's actually a question on whether you can even use a motorboat. So I could go out on a lake. Now, it's, it's April in Michigan. Not a lot of people are on boats. But let's say you go on a boat. That if you're just tooling around the boat, the lake in your boat with your family, that that's suddenly like a violation and that's a danger, a threat to somebody? It doesn't make any sense. It's crazy. Now, it's ambiguous, not surprisingly, that there's one statement, the state website that says you can, one says you can't. The one says you can if you're like a canoe or paddle boat or something, as long as it's physical activity, because they don't want to say you can't go out and do anything because they don't want people to, because you know, you got to exercise and not gain you know, 50 pounds while you're in We already have an obesity problem in this country, and certainly in this state. Uh, they also have restriction on how many people can go in a store. So if it's a over 50,000 square foot store, only four people can be allowed per thousand square feet, or only 25% of the maximum capacity at a fire marshal. And that includes employees. I don't know how many people are in a typical mire. I guess a typical mire is about 200,000 square feet. So I don't know if you're allowing just 800 total people. I'm assuming there are 100 employees at least in a mire. So 700 people are outside. I don't, I'm not sure what the capacities of a mire store is, but my guess is uh, that's going to cause some real problems. And I don't know, maybe we'll get real bread lines. Maybe we'll have, you know, so much restrictions of getting food, we're spending time lining up outside, maybe in the rain, in bad weather. It's like, this does very much feel to me like we're trying to turn ourselves into Venezuela. And this is a real problem, and especially when there's no science behind what's being done with these orders that are being issued. I mean, not being able to advertise VRBOs it doesn't make any sense. Why Why can't I advertise vacation rentals? I mean, I don't have one, but it's like there doesn't seem to be any sort of rhyme or reason to why that exists. Now, our governor was very kind in saying that the Easter Bunny is still allowed to come, but these are the sort of the silly things that are going on. These are political games being played, and these are people's real lives that are at stake. I have someone who's working on a deck at my house, uh, and he's, you know, basically going to go bankrupt. I mean, I can forward him some money ahead of time, but He's not allowed to work, and, and he's just one person. I'm sure he's one of thousands, if not tens or hundreds of thousands of stories across this, our state and, you know, the, the country. Those stories are everywhere, I'm sure. There are real people who are going to be struggling and finding struggling to find ways to make ends meet. Uh, and so you cannot just look at the health implications of what's going on. You have to look at the economic implications, which absolutely have health implications in, in of themselves. And so... I recognize the threat to people for the spread of the virus, but we also have to take into account what we're doing, why we're doing it. And I just don't think that's being done right now in the in the sort of hypersensitive principle of just being safe uh, without recognizing the other hidden costs of what we're doing and turning this into like, again, it feels much like a totalitarian state that you're going to have to start driving with your papers, um, especially for something that it's this order that's lasting as long as it is. And in other places, I think in Virginia, it's going to last into June. It's totally insane. Now, the governor said that she'll reverse things if she sees signs of there's no clear state point, statement of when, but just that she's monitoring the data on st- uh, in the state on infection rates and the spread, whether there's sufficient personnel, beds, ventilators exist, the availability of personal protection equipment, PPE for health workers, the state's capacity to test for COVID um, and the ability to isolate people and the economic conditions. That's number five on the list. This is inadequate. This is not um, any sort of plan. There's not 
<laughs> there should be set goals in what you have. Um, and so if I were governor, what would I do? Because I think this is, this is important to think about what it is that we're looking to accomplish. And our sole focus here is to prevent the spread of the disease without destroying our citizens. That includes, you know, their health, but also their economic well-being, which essentially is also their health. One of the reasons we're so healthy, yes, we've got all kinds of comorbidities with obesity and diabetes stuff, but our prosperity is one of our greatest strengths. It allows us to adapt very quickly to, to problems. You know, we have shortages of things, and we can get them relatively quickly if it weren't for lots of the regulatory burdens in the way. But um, we have manufacturers can regear and retool for things if we need it in a crunch, and so that's one of our great strengths in this, as a country, our great wealth. So if I were governor, number one, I would allow counties to establish guidelines for shutdown of businesses. I think a county by county, maybe even regionally, counties can talk to each other. Um, you can have a, you know a West Central Michigan or Central Michigan, Southwest Michigan. These areas can sort of decide on them for themselves what they want to do and what they think they sh they should do as far as um, shutting down commerce and restrictions, because they're unique. They're not Detroit. Just as Detroit probably could have more draconian shutdowns because it, the disease is much worse there. And you know, counties can make that decision. But I think the state can provide guidance. It can provide data. It can provide all the um, advice and recommendations and things to be safe. Uh, and that's, I think, the role of the larger state in this situation. You can rely on the federal government if you want uh, for guidelines as well, like following CDC guidelines, which has totally failed in general, <laughs> especially when it comes to the masks. Uh, but essentially, you allow communities to decide for themselves what they think is best. And I think that's important. And they can make the restrictions whatever they want. They can prevent other people from coming in and, you know, using their businesses. Like only people from our county can use our restaurant or whatever and make those restrictions. And then you can ease them up much easier at a local level than you can and make it more nuanced for your level, for your local locality to sort of match what the problem is, as opposed to having broad sweeping generalities uh, as laws. That's why it means much better having state laws versus federal laws, but it'd be much better having local county or even community laws if you can just to help you know mitigate the spread of things number two you have to establish some clear goals and an exit plan so this means you have to say okay so we are going to once we see um, a certain death rate coming down or we're going to have significant testing and once we see there's a certain immunity level that's reached or people who've had the disease then we're going to start easing up restrictions because we know that the spread will be a lot lower uh, and I don't care how you do this, but you have to establish something, whether it's cases, deaths, testing parameters, something. But you have to have something so that people know ahead of time if we're where we're going. So often we have policies that are designed that say we're just gonna do X, Y, or Z, and there's no endpoint, there's no idea what, you know, whether we're getting close, whether we're getting farther away, you know, what we're doing. I mean, that's sort of how most policy is developed. You certainly look at foreign policy, that definitely is how it is, right? We're just gonna go into Afghanistan and just fix things. Well, that's you know so ambiguous or going to iraq and fix things well how do you know when it's fixed well you can keep you can change the mission a million times but if you don't have a clear objective you really can't ever win uh, and and giving people that much power over to regulate your act your life is really a bad idea it's something i think generally americans are not for uh, number three you have to establish that mitigation so the of the disease is the only goal so we're not 
we're not having political reasons of like saying, well, we're going to let, you know, this person stay open, not, not the person because, you know, they're a big business or a little business. It's just like if this is something that someone that is at risk for spreading things worse, then we shut that down. If it's not, then it doesn't make any sense to have them close down. Why couldn't you have a large business say, we're going to all take, you know, all landscapers and we're all just going to make sure we work in teams of one. And it's, yeah, it takes longer to do a lawn and maybe it's not as efficient, but we can do it that way. Just like the little guy can do it. I, I think these are things that people could work out rather than just saying, yeah, nobody can do it. And the people who are at no risk of spreading the disease, anybody where they're not, you know, within sight of anybody, except maybe through a window uh, that they're at risk of something. So, I think that's uh, that would be the only goal that should be with the rules writing that that at least when you're trying to figure out the things that people have to do, that should be the only goal. Number four, you should make recommendations. Masks, limit travel, hand washing. I think they're recommendations, but they're not ones that should be you know throwing people in jail because essentially that's what it is, right? I mean, if you're going to prevent someone from being on their motorboat, I mean, it doesn't make any sense. It's crazy. You're going to throw them in jail because they're on, out like just on a joyride on the lake? I mean, they're no threat to anybody. I mean, they couldn't even probably get a seagull sick because a seagull won't get within six feet of them. So uh, you could limit social gathering. I think that's a reasonable thing to do. And I think those would be best established through local, um, you know, to get a feel for what the disease level is in your community. There shouldn't be arbitrary rules. Like why are there restrictions to advertising? That doesn't make any sense at all. Whether you advertise your tile company... <laughs> or whether you're selling carpet, your carpet sale, that has no bearing on whether people are going to get coronavirus. And that's just dumb. Uh, shouldn't have restrictions, and you shouldn't corner off aisles in stores and those sorts of things. I mean, again, this is, goes along, the, it has mitigation has to be your only goal. For those who are vulnerable, tell them that they're vulnerable and to be very careful. It'd be much, it's much more sensible to have people who are elderly, people with diseases, to have other people go get things for them, clean them off, do whatever they can, and just prevent them from getting you know, out in the community and having other people sort of return to work and have more of a normal life and just avoid those people and just have them say, you know, that's just because you can't make everybody stay home because there are a couple people who are um, more at risk. Yes, anybody can get coronavirus. Yes, people can get really sick from it. I totally understand that. But it also, again, there is a trade-off here and you have to be reasonable about what you're doing. And I think then I think the other thing, the last thing is probably one that's very important, which I'm sure won't get done, but needs to get done. I think that you just need to relook at the regulatory framework you have within your state. I know in the state of Michigan, I've had episodes, we talked about this before with the certificate of need laws. There are lots of these restrictions into how many hospital beds we have, how many imaging services we have, laboratory services. These things are restricted by arbitrary boards that are generally made up of the actual people who are the competitors in the market. So you want to open a new hospital? Well, you have to get approval from the hospital board. And guess who sits on that? Your competitors or your future competitors, other hospitals. Well, they're not going to be too keen on you opening a hospital and competing against them. So they don't want those beds. So what happens? We have less of this stuff. We have less choices, less competition, and less ability for, for, this, for when you get some crazy thing like this happen, there's less capacity within the system to, to, to deal with things. Those are state levels. Federal, obviously, you would look at more things with um, the FDA regula regulations as far as laboratory testing, the masks, production, all the different things in healthcare. There's so It's so hyper-regulated, much like the financial services. It is really hard to get anything done, except unless you're a massively large firm. And so it's really tough to be competitive against 
other countries like China. And so you're going to rely on outsourcing to out of the country because you make it too difficult to do business within this country. So, but that's a, a federal thing. But as a state, if you're a governor, I think you would clearly look at that or a state legislator, you clearly look at these, uh, these regulatory problems and, uh, to try and fix things. Well, I hope you're having a good spring break. If it's spring break for you, if it's not, I hope you're having a nice spring. And if you're somebody celebrates Passover or Easter, you're having good holidays as best you can with close friends and family. I know I'm going to come down off my wall here in a little bit and, and cool off, but these things really get me fired up because I really feel like we're no longer living in America. I understand the problem. I don't minimize the threat to life and health for a lot of people, for healthcare workers who are provided really inadequate supplies uh, through their hospitals. Uh, we do not have that problem. My hospital, I think the it's been very good. I mean, we have not really had much as far as um, a surge of patients. We have some. We prepared for it and really haven't had much. And so it's almost like, I mean, it was. I think it was smart to be prepared, uh, but it just never happened. And so now maybe it will in the future. I don't know. But my hunch is we're kind of probably past the worst of it. And again, this may not evergreen well, but my, my expectation is that this is not going to be as bad as everyone thought it was going to be at least in our community, that's not always the case for every community, and I totally understand that. And I think those communities should approach this problem differently than having a blanket response by every community everywhere. So anyway, that being said, be safe, stay healthy. Remember that six feet is nothing magical. It's just distance squared, one over distance squared. So you get a 136th of the dose. But after you're done with this episode, please go to your podcast player, leave a five-star rating, share it with a friend, and we'll talk again. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what The Doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash the paradox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com.